Welcome back to the Gavel and the Gavel. It's me, Harry. I'm based at Auction House, uh, Windsor Auctions in Windsor, and I'm joined by Simon from our Lime Bay Auction House down in Devon. This is Simon calling from Devon. Been watching Eurovision. Oh, have you? Oh, is that what they did? I didn't see it this year. Yeah, yeah. It's Simon calling from Devon. I have the points. I don't have any points. Uh, I've got no points whatsoever. But we do have the magnificent Mr. Baggett back on today. And this one's going to be interesting, Harry, right? Yeah. Um, you're not going to hear from us almost at all, I don't reckon, in this uh, episode. Nope. It's a serious matter. We've given the floor. We've almost pretty much given the pod, haven't we, for today, uh, to Michael. Uh, he's going to be talking about the Antiques Rescue Centre, uh, or ARC, um, and the ivory trade and the ivory legislation. And this is a fascinating topic. Some people are going to agree. Some people are going to disagree. But hey, that's what conversation is all about. So without further ado, let's hand over to our friend, Mr. Baggett. Welcome back to The Gavel and the Gavel. We are, we're changing the tone of the podcast uh, this week, aren't we, Simon? We are indeed. There is, there's a serious matter afoot in uh, auction houses, and we are delighted that we've invited um, back to the pod, Michael Baggett, to discuss um, the Antiques uh, Rescue Centre and recent changes uh, in law regarding the sale of ivory at auctions and the sale of ivory uh, as a whole. Warning, if you listen to this podcast because you like us taking the mickey and poking fun at things, this isn't that episode. This is an educational uh, episode for us all. Us as auctioneers, you the general public, and um, we are privileged that Michael has um, managed to find the time because he and this organisation, which he's a, an instrumental part of, are taking the lead. So um, you won't hear much from Simon and myself. Is that fair, Simon? That's absolutely fair. We are we are genuinely here to learn and be educated. So we're delighted that Michael's here. So over to you, Michael. And thanks for this. Well, no, thank you both, because it's a very serious subject and it's not one that the media deals with. And uh, I mean, you've both got auction houses and this act, the 2018 act, which was delayed for a number of reasons. You know, we had Brexit, we had COVID, we had legal challenges um, to the Act to be worked through. But it was introduced basically almost a year ago um, in June last year. When it was introduced, did either of you receive anything from DEFRA or the government? Did they ring you up? Did they send you a letter? I think we did, Michael, get a letter that was phrased rather strangely that basically said, we have seen from your back catalogues that you have sold ivory in the past. And right. it was basically a shot across our bowels to say, uh, ignorance of the law is no defence. We know that you sold ivory in the past and you need to make yourself aware of the law and you cannot uh, and take this letter basically as a warning that you need to appraise yourself as of the current situation. And that was about it. So there was no helpline number. There was no um, website address for um, this. This is our government centre that will happily advise you as a member of the industry or as a member of the public to guide you through this new legislation. None, none of that? No, I don't believe so. And interestingly, and I think Harry will back me up here, 
probably every week or two weeks, we have somebody bringing us ivory and saying, yeah, but it's definitely pre-1947. It's definitely pre... Uh, Harry is this waving morning. a nice fish slice this morning. Um, and the general public, um, I would say, across the board, are pretty much unaware and quite understandably, I feel, un unaware of the fact that that the law has changed in any way, shape or form. And some of them are aware of the it was pre-19, I can sell it, it's fine, and we have to go, stop, no, etc. So yeah, that's where we feel we're at, and that's about the extent of it. Well, apart from the Antiques Trade Gazette who need praise heaping on them for reporting on this issue, um, it's not being picked up in the mainstream media. In fact, the day the ban... Now, I must correct myself here, because this is the first thing I have to say. The Act does not ban ivory. Ivory was banned in the UK in 1975. Ivory has been banned for sale in Britain for 48 years. But when that ban came in, under the CITES Convention in 1975, they very wisely sat down because they thought this whole three thing through and said, we must have an exemption for antiques so these things are not destroyed because there are history. And I think the arbitrary date of 1947 was arrived at because we just had nuclear testing and explosions. And that meant, and I'm not entirely clear on this myself, that it allowed you to date ivory that was post-nuclear explosions. So it was a good scientific way of determining between the two. But also, stylistically, you will know from handling lots of pieces of Art Deco design and material that they loved natural materials in the 20s and 30s. So they used shagreen, they used tortoiseshell, they used rosewood, they used rightly or wrongly they used ivory and these are now historic objects and they are um you know they're all that remains of the people that made them so this new act this 2018 act didn't ban ivory politicians will tell you it banned ivory it didn't it removed the exemption that was put in place in 1975 to protect antiques and apart from some very minor exemptions now, all ivory, elephant ivory, is banned from sale. We'll run quickly through what the exemptions are, so anyone listening to this will know. There's the de minimis of 10%, which basically means if an object is 10% or less made of ivory and it dates prior to 1947, you can sell it, but nowadays you can only sell it if you go on the DEFRA website and you register that item and you pay a fee of £20. Then you can sell it. Then it's legal to sell. This sets up an impediment in the first place that the object has to be worth more than £20 to apply for this exemption. Sorry, Michael, would that so does that include pianos, musical instruments... Musical instruments have their own exemption of 20%. But they still have to be registered? Um, yeah, but I don't really do the musical instrument side of it because 
We've just I mean, had to. I can. We've just had to get um, certificate for a piano. For, not that we're selling it, but we were clearing the house and it needed to be exported, and we had to. And it was. Oh, I, yeah, I have to yeah. say, it's not easy. And actually, when when they did the figures in, I'm going back and doing what I said I wouldn't, which is talking about before the app came in. But when they had the export numbers saying the UK exports nine thousand items of ivory a year. It turns out that when you export a piano, they count each key as one exported item. So actually, the major part, 90% of our export figures, were keys on about 90 or 100 pianos, which is madness. <laughs> but that, I mean, that I, I, I digress. I digress. I must keep on track. Sorry. So <laughs> you've got, you've, no, no, no. Ask questions because, you know, I might skip over things and, and just assume that people know this stuff. The second exemption is the exceptional exemption. And this means if you've got an object which is entirely ivory or 50% ivory or whatever percentage ivory, you can apply for an exceptional exemption. Now, each application costs £230 to make the application whether it is granted or not. That's the first thing. Huge deterrent to the public. Huge deterrent to auctioneers, huge deterrent to dealers. It is put there really as a deterrent, whatever it might be called. You will have to submit, if you're making this submission, you will have to know everything about your item. The person that assesses it is assessing the object and your submission. But you have to know what it is before you submit it. You have to draw up all the reasons why it should be exempted it's the only one in the country. It's, you know, it belonged to Gladstone. Queen Victoria owned it. You drew all of this up and you submit it to one of a handful of museums. Now, I, I've been asking them at the ATG to look into this submission system. And I think in the last year, there have been about 120. It's around 120 submissions. 90 or so have been approved. 30 or so have been declined. If it is declined, you are sent a letter saying this is the reason we have declined it. You are also told which museum it was submitted to. But here I think there is a big problem. You are not told who has assessed the item. It could be the head of a department. It could be the junior of a department. It could be the cleaner. You do not know. And where there is anonymity, there is no accountability. So people are making decisions on what can and cannot be sold. And that might seem commercial, but we're talking then about what can and cannot be saved. And they are making that decision entirely anonymously. And I believe that's wrong. I also think the system is set up to cope with a certain number of objects. It works submitting these pieces to museums if there are 100 submissions a year. And there are 100 submissions or 120 submissions a year because nobody knows this law has been brought in. So, you know, there are 500 auctioneers in the country. There are possibly 5,000, 10,000 dealers. There are 100,000 collectors. I contest that when this law is enforced in a draconian measure, which may come in a lot sooner than people think, 
there are going to be one or two instances per person where they'll make a submission like this and the system will break. But that's for the future. And But I have genuine concerns over this system. And the whole thing about having a £230 non-refundable fee payable just for the assessment. I mean, if it passes the assessment, you just pay £20 on top for the licence as you would with the de minimis. But the assessment is a separate thing. You have to have it. It's non-refundable. And unless you believe or know for certain that your object is worth at least a thousand, if not two thousand, if not ten thousand pounds, you are not going to go through this process. And the huge problem that I had for about eight years before this this whole thing was passed and enacted, and I've written articles, and you can go on the Antiques Trade Gazette website, and I think they're still up, um, about how Ivory got mixed up and got into sale rooms because CITES was retrospective and all of that. And I engaged immediately with all the wildlife campaigners for the first six months, thinking they don't understand it. If I explain it to them and I explain how these things have come about, we can sort sort out all the problems and concerns they have. We can police CITES, because the only problem with the 1975 CITES convention was no one ever policed it. That was the only problem with it. It was perfect but no one ever policed it. Um, And I said, you know, we can't destroy our history. If you have this law, if you ban ivory, people will destroy it. And for, you know, for six six months a year, I had celebrities um, messaging me and, and, you know, sort of having uh, social media debates with me, telling me I didn't know what I was talking about. I had campaign groups being quite horrible to me um and i explained to them i I said i don't deal in this stuff i don't deal in ivory i don't deal in japanese works of art i deal in silver i deal in silver spoons but some of these things have ivory handles and i know and unfortunately this has proved to be the case i know that if you i'm going to hold up something up now which is great for listeners because they won't see it um it's a marrow scoop it's got a silver blade shaped blade it's for scooping bone marrow roasted bone marrow out and it's got an ivory handle and it came two years ago in a job lot um and i kept it because i knew if i sold it it would ultimately only be a value it's only legal to sell this thing now if you smash the handle off it's the only way you can sell it you can't sell it any other way it's of no value to the person that owns it I mean, it might as well not exist for them. The only way you can get the value out of that is to smash the handle off and scrap the rest of it. There's three ounces of silver there. There's about 45 quid. Unfortunately, almost every person will smash the handle off. It's now the case that if you're an auctioneer or a dealer, you have a book of hallmarks, you have an eyeglass, you have scales, you have a tape measure, and now, purely because of the government, you also have a hammer. You have to have a hammer to smash this stuff up. Because if the client comes into your sale room and says, and say they're not wealthy, you know, say they're a little old lady with a gas bill, we're in a cost of living crisis, and they've got a a set of 
12 fish knives and forks with silver tines and silver blades. And they say, can you sell this for me? And you go, I can't. It's against the law. They'll say, well, can you scrap the silver for me? And you have to then act on their... You, I mean, I'm not expecting auctioneers to turn people away. Because if they turn them away, they'll go to a bullion dealer. If they turn them away, they'll go to a, a silver dealer. They'll go to, there will be somebody who will smash the handle off. All I'm asking for auctioneers to do, when it's clear it's particularly wealthy clients that have large collections of silver or furniture or an entire house contents, if there's one thing, if there's a butter knife or a little set of um, silver handled fruit knives and forks or a fish slice, and the money isn't going to make that much different to the client, suggest to them that it would be better not to smash it up and actually give it to the Antiques Rescue Centre. So in a 100 years, people will know what a fish knife and fork were and what a butter knife was. And, you know, I've had a lot of flack in the trade from this. I had When I set up the account on um, Instagram, there was one guy, I didn't realise he was um, in Holland, and he started straight off, he said... Um, Oh, so we should give you all our medieval carving, should we, Mr. Baggett? And I said, you're giving me nothing. I said, it's not mine. I said, I don't. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I knew this band was eventually coming in after eight years, nine years of writing and campaigning and arguing with people to, to, no, to no apparent avail, um, I didn't really want to do this. I was waiting. I was waiting for the government to say, and we've established this donation and information centre alongside our new initiative to aid members of the public and members of the antiques trade. Or the V&A has now set up a new wing and it will take donations and it will display these objects to the public. Or I was waiting for Sotheby's or Christie's or Bonhams or Barda or Leparda with all their huge sums of money to say, we're going to give something back, we're going to set up a centre, we've got all the expertise you need, come along Monday to Friday, nine till five, we'll help you out, if you don't want it, give it to us. And I was waiting, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and it was a week away. And I've got a lot of other stuff going on in my life, I haven't got the resources to do it, and I haven't got the time or the health to do it. And then I imagined that someone was outside my house with just an ordinary bit of Georgian silver with an ivory handle, and they were going to smash it with a hammer. And I realised that whether I could make it out of the house or not, I would try, and I would stop them. And I would put myself between the object and the hammer. And I thought, if I do that, I have to do this. If nobody else is going to do it... And even if we don't save anything, or we save 10 things, or we save 100 things, or we save 100,000 things, it has to be tried. It has to be done. If it isn't tried and it isn't done, it, it, it all means nothing. We're at a pinch point. You know, you get in evolutionary terms, people talk about pinch points where the population decreases to almost nothing and humanity survives by you know, three people living in a cave. And at the moment, 
we're in a cultural pinch point. And all the people that told me for years that this is only about stopping people sell it, selling it. It won't mean people destroy things. Every minute, if you work it out on what's gone, every minute of every day since that act came in, somebody has smashed up. Not a modern piece of ivory, not a disgusting, horrible bit of tourist carving. They have smashed up an antique. They have smashed up things that are 80 years old, 100 years old, 500 years old. The first call I got when I said I was setting up the Ark was from a dealer who's around the country. And he said, um, and this was two days after the ban came in. And the only notification the public really had was when the ban came in for one news cycle, not the whole day, one news cycle on Radio 4. They had about 20 minutes on it. They had it on BBC Breakfast News and it was on some of the regional news channels. By the evening, the, the story had the story didn't carry through. But for that part of the day, they were saying Ivory's banned, which again is a misnomer. Ivory's been banned for 48 years. But they said, Ivory's banned, you can't sell it, blah, 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 blah. You're going to get £250,000 fine or five years in prison. And upon hearing that, one lady in the south of England, um, who this guy knew was um, selling her house contents, she smashed up a knife and fork just a knife and fork and took it down and scrapped it and the chap that was clearing the house he came in and he said um you know i'll, I'll, I'll buy all this and he said you don't have to worry i smashed up the knife and fork and he said oh well i probably wouldn't work he said oh no well it was a lovely knife and fork i said was this and he said oh it was all carved with figures on the handles a man and a woman and they were wearing old costumes and basically she had smashed up a 17th century wedding knife and fork and she'd taken the silver down to the local jewelers and scrapped it for i think it was 25 quid 25 40 quid that it would be something i knew exactly what the guy was talking about when he told me and i actually said to him Cat, has she still got the pieces has she still got the pieces can we get the pieces off her she said no it was bin day they went out now i sit on social media and i see historians um, go insane when someone paints the local post box a different colour. You know, it's a different shade of red. Or, you know, someone's going to put a parking space somewhere. Unfortunately, and this is why I'm glad you've asked me to talk about this, unfortunately, your Lucy Worsleys, your Mary Beards, um, your Dan Snows, uh, your Simon Sharmas, all tight-lipped. It's seen as a toxic subject. They view the trade with suspicion. They don't want to get involved. If this was a foreign country destroying their own heritage in the way that we have enshrined it in law, you have to do this legally. You're, if you don't and you want to get the value out of an object that you own because you have to, we've enshrined it in law. And if it happened anywhere else, there would be a media campaign of unprecedented scale to stop it. But this is something that has been backed by all the right people and they want it. And as an, ex an example, only last last two, week two weeks ago, and I won't name them, but uh, a notable 
beloved celebrity that's followed by you know millions of people on twitter um was on holiday and i think they happened to go into a museum in india and they happened to look at a beautiful carved mogul box from the late 18th early 19th century and they took a picture of it on their phone and they said isn't the carving on that box wonderful that's all they did and they posted it on social media within 30 minutes one BBC, prominent BBC wildlife presenter would say, take that down. That's not appropriate. We must not celebrate this stuff. So it's not that you can't own it. It's that you can't see it. You can't say this is something that is hundreds of years old. It may not even, I mean, the campaigners don't like this. It may not even be a piece of ivory that was hunted. A lot of it wasn't before the Victorians, who were, you know, sociopaths when it came to wildlife. But prior to that, a lot of this stuff is gathered as pick-up ivory because there were huge natural populations. Animals died in their hundreds of thousands each year. You would have to be literally insane to go and hunt it when it's lying there on the ground in tens of thousands of examples, more than enough to supply the needs of medieval Europe, I promise you. So we're in this situation now where it's all being vilified, but it's also illegal. And I just thought before this law came in, what happens when you get a house clearance? You know, what happens when no one in the family wants it? Because every item now that is ivory, that is in public ownership, and again, I must say, we get the impression that our museums are the custodians of all our national treasures. They are like ships tossed on a massive ocean. They have some of the most precious things that we have. But the majority of everything, the majority of our history is cared for by the public. It's cared for by collectors. It's cared for by families and households. And since this law came in, every object in every household is effectively locked in there. It cannot be, it can be given away, but it cannot be sold. The market, which was the way that something passed from one collector to another, that mechanism does not exist anymore. So, Michael, can I just jump in there? Because... I think our listener would want to get an, a sort of an understanding, would want to get an understanding of the um, the ARC or the Antiques Rescue Centre. So uh, there's a there's an article about you um, and the ARC in the ATG a couple of weeks ago. And Richard Winston um, has collected up a number of items. They clear a lot of houses and they've shipped those to you. You're, they, I'm taking it, so I'm just trying to get my head around the practicalities. They then go into a storage facility and then you catalogue them. Is that how it works or what happens? No, they're in a box beside me uh, as I'm talking to you. That is the storage facility, Michael. This is, I am <laughs> the storage facility. And then you catalogue those items. So yeah. the general public, there is a uh, a, founda- a a donation form that's actually on the Antiques Gazette um, website, yeah, I, which I, we'll, I, look, we'll link to so that people yeah. can get hold of it. So you can, I mean, that's basically for auctioneers to download, have them, have them in your briefcase when you go on a visit, Yeah, have them on the counter uh, and... 
I mean, basically, the the answer to this problem is that the government provides us with a home where these things can be seen, and not only seen, but handled. I mean, it would be the most marvellous museum in the world because nothing's worth anything. It's, you know, there'd be no point in stealing it. You can't sell it. It'd be perfect. I mean, in an ideal world, there would be a large, I mean, it can be a large industrial warehouse on an industrial estate. It will be open for the public, anybody in the public, to freely come in and talk to volunteers. I mean, it's a volunteer thing at the moment. Um, I mean, I'd volunteer as much time as I possibly could. I'd probably go and live there. Um, lots of people in the antiques trade that get vilified, they just they just want to help. Nobody's getting anything out of it. As I say, I, I don't want it in the house because I don't really have room for it. But if it's a choice between me housing it and putting it somewhere or finding somewhere it can go and it going in the dustbin, well, it's coming here. Um, we'll save it somehow. I mean, this this we're basically... Rome is on fire, and there are about five people with buckets running down to the Tiber, trying trying to put the fire out. Can I ask a slightly off the wall question? Yeah, of course you can. To to play devil's advocate or or whatever, there might be some people out there that say, "Okay, Michael, so what if all the ivory gets smashed up? So what if there is no more ivory? The poor ele- the elephants, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Help us understand what it is we're losing by not having this ivory. Because I feel that some people might say, okay, so ivory's bad, and therefore if it gets smashed up, so what? Uh, can you answer the so what for me? Yeah, of course I can. First of all, the, the easiest thing is two wrongs don't make a right. It's very clear, and without, you know, I can, I can see we're going on already, but the sale of a Georgian teapot with an ivory handle and a finial in Tunbridge Wells does not fuel the international trade and criminal gangs in hunting elephants. And honestly, if you can prove that it does, well done, because you can't, because it doesn't. Um, I mean, it's basically the Southeast and the Chinese trade that has driven this whole thing. Um, but you know why? Why should we keep it ourselves? We're all going to be dead in a hundred in a hundred years' time. Everyone watching this now, and maybe a few shorter than that, but everybody watching this now will be dead. The only things we leave behind are the things we write, the things we build, and the things we make, and our children. That's it. And these are not a hundred objects. You know, people say, "Oh, it's ivory." Ivory, until the end of the 19th century, until we discovered cellulose-based plastics to take their place, ivory was used in nearly everything. Everything will have an ivory component to it. The inlay on a piece of Thomas Chippendale furniture, some of it is ivory. It's a piece of, you'll look at it and say, well, that's a piece of furniture. It's got ivory in it. It's got ivory on it. Little bits of it are ivory. The handles of things are ivory. The thing that this whole debate missed were mixed media objects. And there aren't hundreds of them. There aren't thousands of them. There are millions of them. And these restrictions in Britain are like a steamroller. It's moving very slowly, but it is crushing everything in its path. And importantly, 
it will never stop. So if I get this marrow scoop and I give it to my nephew and I live for another, you know, at least another day, he has it. He's a young lad. He has it and he keeps it. He says, my uncle gave me that. I'm never going to part with it or smash it up. He's got 80 years. He has kids. He says, this belonged to your great uncle. Don't smash it up. And they go, you must be joking. So it's trapped. Every object is trapped and every object will be destroyed or mutilated or simply thrown away unless every generation of your family, not three generations hence, not 10, not 30, every generation of your family takes the time and effort to look after it. And here's the news flash: they won't. So it's gone. And it's millions of objects. And we can't tell now what is going to be important to somebody 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. I mean, that's how far I'm looking forward with this. I've thought about this a lot. It's almost driven me mad. You go to the British Museum today and you'll see um, some of the Lewis chessmen. You know, the berserker biting the shield chess pieces that were found up in Scotland and that's like the poster image of Viking Europe that speaks to it if you went back a thousand years and you said to the people that were making all of this stuff what is worth saving they wouldn't have saved that chess set that's like something from times past to us they would have saved huge ceremonial horns that still do exist and wonderful carvings and ships and that, but they wouldn't have saved that. We never know what's going to be important. We never know what's going to speak for us when we're gone. And it seems utterly wanton and stupid because this stuff, this stuff goes anyway. People melt stuff down with ivory handles before there's a law. You know, not many of them because they can get more for the object. But people still did if the handle was badly damaged. So we're losing little bits all the time. But to pass a law that means we're going to lose everything over the next 10 or 20 years, it's insanity. It's like taking a hammer and chisel to Michelangelo's David and chipping bits off. It's like repainting the Mona Lisa. You know, it's it's wrong. People, these objects are all we have left of the people that made them. We often don't know who those people are. Um, this is a, I'll send you a picture of this if you want to put a link on it. That's a fork that I bought years and years ago, catalogued as 19th century. It's a 17th century Italian carved ivory handle. There are, there are similar ones in the V&A. It's a masterpiece. I don't know who made it. 370 years ago i don't know who carved it he's gone now he's dust this remains this is the only testament to him if that's not important i don't know what important is bearing in mind and i underscore this that whether this stuff is destroyed or saved or thrown in a wood chipper, which is what the Born Free Foundation pledged to do with every item that is donated to them, and they have had thousands, not that they've kept a record of it. Um, whatever happens to these antiques, 
it will not save the life of one single elephant. It is like trying to tackle the international drugs trade by shutting down every NHS pharmacy, because they're both drugs, aren't they? It's that same lack of logic. And the whole thing came about when one MP lost a safe Conservative seat and it was put down to the fact that she supported, because she was president of BADA, head of BADA, she supported that we did not have this new act. Somebody ran the figures and said this was a contributing factor and overnight you could not find anyone in the House of Commons that didn't see this as a win-win for them. There's no downside for them because they don't care about the stuff. And that's why we're where we are. And that's why we had to have the ARC just just as, a, I mean, I, I say it to people, it's a last resort. You know, if you can persuade, you know, if somebody comes in saying, oh, you know, I want you to smash these up and say, well, have you got children? Will they have them? And they say, well, they might have them. Let them have them. It's less, it's less for us to look after. If they'll look after it themselves and value it, that's great. But what we do need at some point is a large national centre that accepts donations, that lists all these items on a searchable database, which I don't think would cost a fortune. It's beyond me, but I think that's entirely doable. So people can access them as they do the V&A and British Museum collections all over the globe. We need an area where, you know, school children can come in on, you know, visits and get the schools in and they can look at the stuff and we can explain to them what's gone on. We can say this was wrong in the late 19th century. The Victorians slaughtered all these elephants. Here are the photographs. These are the objects that they were made. There's no point hiding from history or the objects. But we can also say, you know, look at this. Isn't it beautiful? The man that made it was highly skilled. And actually, the piece of ivory he used for this probably was just pickup ivory that was exported by indigenous people. And we can explain all of that to them. But most of all, and I think this is where, I mean, this is what I've spent most of my time doing for the past year. You can offer people advice on what they've got because there's nowhere they can go. There's no independent centre. I mean, I get emails every day now from the really dreadful Antiques Rescue Centre website that I managed to cobble together, which was a miracle just to have something there. I get people saying, you know, will you take this? What's this? Can I sell this? Is this legal? Will I break the law? I've become the government information centre for this law, which is ridiculous. But nobody else is doing it. The service is not provided. So we've got a lot to do. I've got a lot to do. Michael, you're, you would like to call on, and I'm going to, I'm putting words in your mouth now, so correct me if I'm wrong. So you would, you're encouraging other auctioneers, Richard Winston are the first people who sent the box to you, to offer, um, have a donation box in their sale rooms. Yeah. As a, as a fallback, as a safety net for, to salvage items um, that uh, can then be gifted to, to ARC. Yeah. And yeah. they, then they will go on this cataloging life route, route yeah. et cetera. They'll just, they'll survive. I mean, we, we had, when I did it, Four people I must thank, Gareth at Cooper and Tanner, Christina at Trevanians, Angus at Rydales, and Colin at Golding Young. They said, they immediately said, we'll act as a drop-off point. I think in a year, 
Um, they've received, I don't think Angus has received anything. I think Christina's had one donation posted to her. Collins had one donation posted to him and Gareth's had two, you know, but they, but you know, we're, this is against a backdrop of this law not being known about and not being enforced in any way or form. And I think that that's the issue, isn't it? It's the, the lack of knowledge. If there was more knowledge, we, as Simon and I, and I've just, I held up that fish slice at the very beginning of this interview. If people knew, they wouldn't be asking us the question. And no. every single person who I meet says, well, I've never heard of that. Well, the, wor- the worrying thing I, I get is I get auctioneers. And I'm happy to do this, by the way. I get auctioneers sending me photos saying, can we sell this? And I have to explain it to them. And I have to say, you have to do this, this and this. Now, there are some auctioneers that are really diligent. I've noticed Druids are really good at getting all the exemptions for them, uh, for anything with a de minimis. But even then, there are, there, are, there are things about the Act that are untested. Because the thing that most people don't realise, and you really have to read the Act and the DEFRA guidelines on their website, I mean, you have to read them and read them and read them. You're not allowed to include any voids within an object. Now, that was originally put in so you couldn't have a figure on a heavy base with nothing in it. But does that apply to a teapot or not? Is the empty void within a teapot, is that included? Because a lot of auctioneers have assumed when they look at a teapot and they see a handle, they say, well, yeah, that's fine because the teapot's that big and the handle's that big. So that's less than 10%. Well, not if you don't include the void. It becomes really difficult. And there's no one to ask. Uh, the other thing is, people are, lots of people are continuing in the manner that they did before because there is no enforcement. I think when Laura at the ATG asked what enforcement has there been of the legislation, the answer that came back was we have all the laws in place and penalties and we have the registration systems in place. They didn't actually say we have anyone checking them. We have anyone coming round making sure you're not doing it. And, you know, for the first three months of this act coming in, I had dealers emailing me every Sunday saying, you never believe what I've seen at the local car boot. You'll never believe it. What all, and this is members of the public. So I've seen it for sale all over the place because nobody knows. And even when they do it, nobody polices it. The worst offenders, um, possibly on eBay, uh, and yeah, I mean, they can't have any malicious intent at all, are registered charities. Because the few people that know they can't sell a piece of ivory take it along to the charity shop. And I see weekly charities selling ivory handles, fish servers, and what have you, all on eBay. They don't call them bone, they don't call them ivory, they just call them fish servers. And they sell them. And I have, because it, you know, because I'm the, the guy that has written about ivory, I get people saying, have you seen that? Have you seen what, the, have you seen what they're doing? And as a key example, last, last week, a lady was directed by an auctioneer. She'd taken a set of Georgian, family Georgian cutlery with ivory handles in to an auctioneer who had quite rightly said, we cannot sell it. And it's worth its bullion value only. And she took it away. And um, she contacted us. 
she said, can I have clarification on what the auctioneer told me? And I said, yes, of course. Why? She included a link to a UK dealer's website where he was selling exactly the same thing, offering it for sale. And obviously, I, I can't get involved with that side. I'm not the police. I can't, I can't comment on what other people are doing. I know that they're doing it, but I can't comment on it. And as I said to Laura at the traders there, I don't want to draw attention to it either. Um, because quite honestly, at least these things aren't being smashed up. And it's up to individuals what they do. But I made it absolutely clear to this lady that there was no legal way that these things could be offered within the UK. And, and she will have drawn her own assumptions from it. But that's how confusing it is for people. Now, I am just me. It's me, a couple of volunteers, a couple of auction houses. As far as what the auction houses can do, you don't have to be a drop-off centre. You don't have to have that awful responsibility. All I'm saying is keep a thick, sturdy cardboard box in the corner of the sale room, somewhere dark and dusty, if you've got to take the finial off a Georgian teapot, okay, take the finial off a Georgian teapot, put it in the box. If you go to a house call and there are two Japanese netski and the solicitor says, clear the place, put them in the box. Fill out a donation form on behalf, get the solicitor to sign it. The donation forms are, are, are important because it basically says, what would you do with this otherwise? And, you know, I want as many people as possible to tick the box. We'd chuck it in the bin or we'd smash it because those forms will not now, but maybe in five years' time, be a very useful folder of evidence um, if we try and get this de minimis level raised to a sensible level of 50% or something. And that may happen. I mean, that might be a pipe dream, but it may happen. It's all useful. But just keep a cardboard box. And here's the tricky thing. When the cardboard box is full, post it to me. I don't give my address out to the public because prior to this, I had a car window smashed when I'd written an article. So I can't do that. If you're an auctioneer and I know you, I will give you my address. You'll probably have it on file anyway. Post the box out to me. Put the cost of the postage down to your tax bill or get someone to drop it off when they're driving past. If you've got a job, we don't have to have the stuff straight away. Just drop it off and then it's saved. And I would be amazed if it was more than one box a year. Maybe it's two boxes a year. It won't be a lot of stuff. But also, I mean, space is an issue. I'm on Twitter. We've got the website. The email's up. We're on Instagram. If you get an object and you don't know whether it is a genuine antique or some horrible bit of tourist trash, which we, we can't say. We can't save. Uh, the cutoff is 1947. I'm enforcing the old CITES regulation. I think that's sensible. Um, send me a picture. One thing I do have is I've got time. Send me a picture. Send me pictures of this stuff and I will get straight back to you. And if it's not for us, I will say, no, that will have to. I'm sorry, that's later stuff that will have to go in the bin or. But it doesn't need to be this. This is the other thing. It doesn't need to be valuable. You know, most of the stuff Richard left wouldn't have been worth anything in the first place if you could have sold it. You know, it was 20, 30 pound things, electroplated fish servers, um, a Georgian fruit knife. You know, they're not important things in and of themselves, 
But there are two things. The first thing is one day it will be something important because we all see it. We all see the odd little carving or the odd little object that turns out to be some 18th century South Sea Island thing and there's only two of them in the world. And we're stopping that going in the bin, which is really important. But the other thing is the Georgian fruit knife is just as important because everybody else in the country is throwing them away. These will be the only things left. So it doesn't matter what they are, if they're antique. Most of the other stuff is being binned. And, you know, if members of the public are listening and, and they're thinking, you know, this is all exaggerated and what have you. We have lost in the last year tens of thousands of objects. They have just been binned. Richard is the example. He dropped off about 30, 40 pieces. Um, I had to sort through it. Some of it was later. 30 or 40 pieces, and it's taken him three months. There are 500 auctioneers in the country. Do the maths. You know, it, and this is besides all the stuff that you're seeing smashed of its handles being sold for scrap on the sale room, in the bullion dealers. You know, it, it's all going. We just have to do what we can. I'm not asking anybody to do a lot. Just do, a, do one. If, if everyone in the antiques trade, and by everyone in the antiques trade, I mean 10% of it, because I know what the antiques trade's like. But if 10% of the antiques trade save one box full of stuff a year, it, it's worth it. I said to Richard, when he knocked on my door, because he dropped it off himself. I mean, fair play to him. And I didn't know he was keeping it either. Just knocked the door, rang me up and said, can I come round with a box of stuff? I said, of course you can. Knocked on the door and I said, well, look, it's been a year. This is the first donation. If this is all we get, and hopefully it won't be, but I said, if this is all we get, we save something. Thank you so much. You know, it, it, it really is like, you know, pull. it's like the end of Titanic, pulling whoever you can onto the tiniest raft imaginable. But you have to do it, don't you? Michael, I think that I know this pod is going to attract um, attention, but I think the most important thing is that you sort of put it out there and made people aware of what the legislation is actually on about. We've pointed them in the right direction. We're going to make sure that they can donate. I'm pretty sure that I speak for Simon and, and myself and say, that um, there'll be a box in the corner of both of our auction rooms. Um, not just because you're a friend of the pod, but because we get we get where you're coming from um, and we understand you because you're so passionate about these things. And we know this is, you know, it's it's it, there's a much broader thing about history and people and society involved in this whole conversation. It, it's, it, it's important. If somebody comes along because of this and says... I am younger and fitter and wealthier, and I and I will take this off you. And I want to go, and I want to do or it. work with you, or, or volunteer with, with you. That's you know, you're that. That's all I want. I'm sure you're happy that you'd be happy to mentor somebody. You know, in, in this, I, 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 I know. I just put that straight into your uh, those words into your mouth, but I. I feel we're on the right on the right page, you and I. That you, I know that you would happily put your time in for that. Oh no, absolutely, and and the, the whole thing is this has to go on. It has to go beyond me, the people that are volunteering at the moment. Ultimately, um, it will be enshrined when government gets involved. But I don't think they're going to get involved for some time yet until it can be shown 
what they're doing. But, you know, we'll, ju- we'll just do whatever we can. That's all we can do. Michael, thank you. Absolutely. And Harry, I just to echo that, I will be straight off of this podcast. There will be a box in the corner and the team will be briefed. And I take on board the very passionate plea that you've put forward. And it makes a lot of sense that we do. There is a better way to protect our heritage than what this is bringing about. So there will be a box in the corner of Lime Bay Auctions. There'll be a box in the corner of Windsor Auctions. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for your time and and your your efforts. Thank you for thank you for letting me talk about it. And uh, I'm sorry I've gone on for so long, but um, it's been fascinating, Michael. No, no, no. And really appreciated. Thank you, Michael. Uh, next time you're on, we're going to make it lighter. <laughs> Look, <laughs> back to normal. This is this is why I didn't talk about it the first time. <laughs> you know, it's a bit heavy. It's a bit sombre, but it has to be said. No, next next time we'll do my book. We'll do the book next. The All book. right, mate. You take care. Cheers, Michael. Michael. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye-bye. Well, mate, that was, I mean, that was very interesting. Um, as predicted, we didn't support talk very much, if at all. I feel better educated. How about you? That was fascinating. Um, absolutely fascinating. Uh, Michael is very passionate. Uh, his passion comes across in that podcast. I learned a lot. It's a complicated and fascinating subject. And I think, in my humble opinion, it's been very, very, very worthwhile getting Michael on and listening to everything that he has to say. And there'll be a box in the corner of my auction room, as I'm sure there will be yours, Harry. So thank you, Michael. That was fascinating. Absolutely. Um, There'll be links uh, in the description uh, of the uh, episode. For all the things that we talked about, donations, uh, we'll try and get some links up there for the actual legislation. We must add into this conversation Uh, Michael is not offering legal advice. Uh, If you want more information, look to your legal professionals, look to the legislation, read the legislation, and at the end of the day, make your own informed decision. I mean, if nothing else, it's an education for people. People need to understand that um, it is a complicated subject, as you say. And you've you've got to keep the conversation going to make sure that people are better educated about what's going on and this change of legislation. We get asked about it all the time. It's it's odd. As an industry, we cannot bury our head in the sand. And that is why we needed Michael on this podcast. And I think it was very much worth doing. If it opens a conversation, if it opens a debate, if it makes us think more about these issues, then it's been worth doing, would be my humble opinion. So... Thank you, Michael. Uh, Do like, subscribe, comment, and we will see you for the next podcast.